Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 1st, 2010. For the first time in like a week and a half, I don't feel completely overwhelmed today. Kind of a... Well, I don't know how to explain it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think critically, to help you to think biblically, or in the reverse order, biblically, critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And we try to have a little bit of fun along the way because there's just some crazy stuff being said out there. And sometimes laughing at the stupid stuff is an apologetic in and of itself. I mean, because somehow people seem to think that just because they have a spiritual opinion that it must be on par with Scripture and that they're... Uh, the burblings of their theological ego must, must be true, and they're not. As a result of it, we got some really crazy things being said out there. And so uh, we, we just take the, take our time. There's no rush. There's no rush. Take our time to take a look at what people are saying and then do the comparative work. And uh seems like time after time after time, things, well, they come up short and uh, by way of demonstrating what the truth isn't, then we can springboard and show you what the truth is. So, I mean, that's really all uh, what we do here. And the goal, my the big axe I'm really trying to grind, I want to tell you about Christ and Him crucified for your sins. You know, it, it, if, uh, if a program goes by where I don't get the opportunity to tell you about the forgiveness of sins, for you, even you, uh, somebody who's a Christian— you know, you say, well, you know, I, why do I need to hear the gospel? I mean, I, uh, you know, I made a decision to follow Jesus, you know, 15 years ago, and that was the stuff that, you know, that, I mean, yeah, I understand Jesus died for my sins, but why do we need to keep focusing on that? Well, because you sin daily, and we focus in on Christ, 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 and what he's done, done, done. That's the good news. We worship him as our great God and Savior, not ourselves, not our life improvement or any of that kind of stuff, not our sanctification. And see, that seems to be the general where things kind of go wacky, okay? There's some bad things that happen, and, it, it, you know, <clears throat> y'all familiar with the, the hurricane season? Apparently, we got a big old hurricane out there in the Atlantic, and there's, an, there's what, Earl and Fiona 
uh, coming barreling towards the uh, eastern seaboard. And um, and if you if you understand how hurricanes form, I mean, if you watch the satellites, I mean, being the nerd that I am, uh, I I I enjoy looking at the satellite photos and going, "Ooh, look! Yeah, there's a hurricane coming." Um, but um, it, what happens is is it's it's a tropical wave. It's you know this time of the year, the winds coming off of North Africa. You know, they create a, what's called a tropical wave, and when that tropical wave hits the Atlantic, you know, something screwy goes wrong, and then it starts rotating in on itself, and next thing you know, it's a tropical storm, then a Category 1, all the way up to a Category 5 hurricane, and, and they, they, they become these powerful things. And uh, when when things go wrong uh, in the teaching in a church, many times it begins with something kind of a... Uh, a heretical wave, just just something that's off, something that doesn't quite get corrected, and and then it just grows into this uh, bad bad thing, and so generally uh, it has to do with somebody mishandling God's word, and it could be uh, you know a, a, an honest mistake, uh, it could be somebody who doesn't who doesn't correctly know how to handle God's word, and as a result of it, they start they take the focus off of Christ. And instead, take the focus and put it squarely on yourself. Uh, either that or God's the authority of God's word is brought into question. There's uh, compromises that are made with the teaching in, in an attempt to uh, make it more appealing to the world. I mean, there's all kinds of these tiny little things that yeah, that, that seem like there might be some wisdom to it. That, uh, uh, for instance, you might confuse sanctification with justification. Uh, you can confuse law and gospel, and not properly understand how those two interplay with each other in the Scripture and what the purpose of each is. And and as a result of it, yeah, you're, you're, you know, the teaching starts to drift uh, in in such a way that over a long period of time, it goes from a tropical wave to a you know depression to a storm to a hurricane. And uh, right now, um, because of the way the church is, um, denominations don't seem to be doing their job as far as many denominations, as far as not, not just, you know, organizing themselves and, you know, organizing their missions and their seminaries and things like that. But one of the functions that uh, denominations have served through the centuries has been to correct false doctrine, to remove those teachers who aren't teaching correctly. And uh, in today's politically correct atmosphere, and in today's non-denominational atmosphere, there is no doctrinal accountability at, at, at all. Um, it, it doesn't exist in the organized denominations for the most part. Um, it definitely doesn't exist on the congregational level where you have uh, pastors who are just preaching rank heresy. And there's no accountability. There's n- there's nobody saying, stop. That's not what God's Word says. So, you know, we kind of provide an ad hoc discernment service here, not designed so much to call the uh, false teachers to repentance, although we would love to see them repent and to be forgiven, and we pray for them and mention them uh, mention them in such a way that they should be brought before the Lord in prayer for that very specific reason. Um, but really, this is more for the body of Christ, the greater body of Christ, for them to stop and to compare what is being taught in the name of God to the Word of God uh, so that they will no longer be taken in by these deceptions 
and uh, maybe salt and light in their congregations and may be able to uh, call individual teachers, leaders, pastors to uh, to repent and to reconsider their teaching in, in light of the clear teaching of the Word of God. That's one of the goals that we have here. So uh, that's what we do. It's not politically correct. I don't pull any punches. And uh, as somebody said to me yesterday, you know, Chris, um, uh, you're really blunt. <laughs> yes, I am really blunt. And uh, I'm more concerned about someone's eternal soul than I am about potentially hurting their feelings. In fact, I know for a fact that the work that I do here does hurt people's feelings. And uh, sometimes those feelings need to be hurt so that they will wake up and to reconsider what they're saying and teaching and believing in light of what God's Word clearly says. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, some people say I'm hateful. Some people say I'm heartless. But this, none of this is done out of hate. Uh, this is done out of love and service for my neighbor because uh, I don't want to see any of my neighbors. And you're my neighbor. I don't want to see any of my neighbors uh, go into uh, that eternal darkness known as hell as a result of idolatry, false belief, a false gospel, um, heresy, error. I, no, I, I don't want to see any of that. And so, you know, I, I do what I do out of love for my neighbor and a hatred for, the, for Satan and his deceptive darkness and his false teaching. I, uh, it's true, I, I hate false teaching, but I truly love the folks that uh, are caught up in it and want them to experience the freedom and love that comes from Christ through the shed, his shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins, even the, the sins of their idolatry, their false teaching and heresies. And uh, I see all, really all false teaching is a form of slavery. It really is a form of slavery that robs people of the true peace and joy offered through the gospel. Yes, there's peace offered through the gospel. And it's the peace of knowing that you have a perfect right standing before God as a result of what Christ has done for us. And uh, as somebody who has been involved in false teaching and doctrine, been caught up in, 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 false, in a false church, uh, when I was a younger man, uh, my wife and I both got caught up in a very horrific movement. And I understand the uh, the slavery, the bondage, the doubt, the rat wheel, the exhaustion that goes along with false teaching. And I'm telling you, there is some, the, the, the Christianity offers something completely different than that. It offers freedom and peace with God as a result of what Christ has done. And so everything I do is done out of love for my neighbor, not hatred for my neighbor. Um, the problem is, is that, uh, well, in today's politically correct arena, I mean, I sound out of place. Yet if you read Christian history, if you read the patristics, if you read the early church fathers and their uh, debates and their writings against uh, the heretics, you'll realize that um, yeah, my rhetoric is nothing compared to theirs. Um in the sense that, uh, boy, those guys really got in people's faces. And uh, I, I, I hope someday to attain to that. But I realize that that type of uh, ability to speak boldly comes uh, from a mature faith and, uh, and a well-studied faith. And uh, as I continue to study and read and study and read, you know, it, it pushes me in that direction. But the, these types of things, you know, they can't be contrived. They're grown uh, through suffering uh, and battle, if you would. Anyway, 
off topic. Moving along here, fighting for the faith, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. Now, again, when we talk about what we're going to talk about, the problem is is that these are just potential uh, uh, things that we could be talking about uh, on the program, and we may not be able to get to all of them. Uh, Pastor Stephen Furtick of uh, Elevation Church down there in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, has a book that's uh, coming out on September 21st, and the name of it is Sun Stand Still. Uh, oddly enough, I reviewed a um, a sermon-like lecture that um, Pastor Furtick delivered to a, 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 a group of church planters a couple of years ago uh, down there in Georgia, and and he it was his son stands still uh, sermon, if you would, and uh, it suffers from all kinds of biblical hermeneutical problems. Uh, I today on the program uh, I've got audio from a video that's on his uh, new website, uh, in, you know, for the book that's come out. He's trying to put basically this is a book that kind of puts himself in the same genre as the type of books that Mark Batterson has been writing the uh, chase the wild goose the uh, in a pit on a snowy day with a lion that's the genre of the book here that we're dealing with and uh, we're going to listen to uh, Stephen Furtick because um what what we're listening to in this gentleman is a guy who um well, uh, is getting extra biblical revelation, direct revelation from God, and claims he's vision casting and stuff like that. And what I'm hearing is not in accord with sound doctrine uh, as laid out in God's Word. Instead, what I'm hearing is a very self-focused, narcissistic, chasing after the wind. And uh, and so we're going to listen to uh, Stephen Furtick uh, talking about uh, some of the themes from his book, uh, you know, on today's program, let's see. I don't want to talk about Glenn Beck. Um, <laughs> I'm going through the things. Oh yeah, yesterday we didn't get a chance to uh, listen to Al, uh, Doctor Albert Moeller's uh, response to uh, uh, Professor Giberson, uh Carl Giberson of uh, Biologos, and his hit piece that he wrote into in the Huffington Post. So I'm going to read from uh, uh, Doctor Moeller's response to uh, Doctor Giberson, which I thought was very good. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I don't want to go to the UK. Oh, yeah, here we go. Huffington Post. A Jesus Seminar celebrates 25 years of searching for the historical Jesus. Yeah, the blind leading the blind for 25 years, and they're celebrating their 25-year anniversary, the Jesus Seminar. Yeah, that's just terrible stuff. And uh, <laughs> I think that's all we're going to have time for today uh, before we get into our sermon review. And the sermon review in hour number two comes to us via uh, seeker-driven leadership uh, megastar uh, Craig Groeschel and uh, his church, LifeChurch.tv. That's the website if you want to find it. And the name of his uh, sermon is entitled Toxic Relationships. Uh, That's right, Toxic Relationships. He's doing a sermon series uh, 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 entitled Toxic and uh, the, and the sermon we're going to be looking at is toxic relationships, and I chose this one because this is a sermon that I think that I heard preached when uh, I was a young lad uh, in the Nazarene Church. I mean, th- this is kind of a standard boilerplate uh, type of sermon. Now, we've all heard the verse: uh, Scripture says, "Bad company corrupts good character," and you've all you've all heard about it, and how. 
foolish talk spreads like gangrene. Usually those two verses, ripped out of context, by the way, are stuck together, and you are admonished in a very moralistic way you know, to surround yourself only with those people who would, who would build you up and to shun bad character and stuff like that. And um, the reason I chose this one is because you might be shocked uh, what happens when you take those two verses that have been ripped out of context and put them back into their context and uh and you know because one remember uh, last week i i made the claim and this is i think a metaphor that i think people can latch on to is that those who rip bible verses out of context and then tell stories about them are not really correctly teaching you what god's word says and as a result of it uh what it's really like it's like the old 70s game show the Liars Club, where they take some bizarre object that you may not be familiar with, remove it from the context where you would find it, and then people and then actors and actresses lie about what that thing is. But one of them tells the truth, and so um, that's what happens here. This is a, it's a Liars Club technique, and so we've all heard the sermon. If you've spent any time in evangelicalism, you've heard this sermon. Uh, no doubt about. It. I mean, this is not a sermon that uh, that begin you know began with Craig Rochelle. In fact, I'm sure as a young lad growing up in the church, he heard this sermon preached to him by his pastor, and probably his pastor heard it preached to him by his pastor. And so I, I can't I can't tell you where the origins of this particularly interesting twisting of these two passages and st- stuck together began. I don't know the origins of them, but you know, stay tuned if uh, for the sermon review. I know some of you don't like uh, don't like slogging through them because they're a little bit depressing. Uh, stick through this one because it's rather interesting to see what happens here. In fact, I remember uh, back when I was your typical American moralistic uh, right wing uh, culture warring evangelical. Okay. And you know, I remember hearing sermons like this. This one, uh, this I remember hearing the sermon and other sermons like this. And what I find interesting is in listening back to this sermon, because again, this is just standard boilerplate uh, American moralistic fundamentalism, uh, evangelicalism. Sorry, um, in listening back to this sermon and you know, and the points being made, uh, it, one of the things that I find striking is is that as now as a confessional Lutheran, where we have a, a lectionary. That our pastor preaches from, and uh, this, you know, that goes. This is a historic lectionary. One of the ideas behind the lectionary was it was to protect us from bad, bad preaching. If you understand the the uh, where the lectionary is and what the function that it serves, it gives the pastor the text that he's supposed to be preaching on, takes away this innovative vision casting stuff, and requires him to actually preach on biblical texts and do so in context. And so, uh, you know, I, one thing that's striking as I was kind of pre-reviewing this sermon is, is that I've never heard a sermon like this in the Lutheran church, at least in the confessional churches that uh, I've attended. And the reason why is because all of the pastors that I have had since becoming a confessional Lutheran, they always preach on texts in context. And uh, and so it's impossible to come up with this emphasis the way Craig Rochelle comes up with in the sermon uh, if you were actually preaching the the text in context. So it's rather, it's it's eye-opening. Let's just put it that way. So I uh, hope you stay through the uh, sermon review today because, like I said, if you've spent any time in American evangelicalism, you have heard this sermon. doesn't matter. It, I mean, this, this one just makes the rounds. I mean, this is standard stuff. So anyway, uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper 
And um, I don't have a, a – I don't – you know what's funny is I, I have some standard music I play when um, uh, when Perry Noble appears on the program and I do a Perry Noble update. But I don't have a Stephen Furtick one. And um, I, I keep debating back and forth as to whether or not I should. I, I actually have a couple of ideas as to what I could do if I did a regular Stephen Furtick update. But let me tell you my take on Stephen Furtick. I think this is a guy who wrestles with his own demons. And um, I and this is um, he's entirely too self-focused and narcissistic, and he really believes he's getting visions from God. The problem is, is that as things pan out, that it, you know, it, I don't think his visions all come to pass, and I think he's wrestling and struggling with some things in his own life. And uh, as a result of it, I, I see a young man who is striving and confused. I mean, he reminds me of the main character from the movie The Apostle, um, for lack of a better way of putting it. That's that's who he reminds me of. He has these grand visions for his life, and uh, and yet he wrestles with his own demons. And, uh, and I think his problem lies in the fact that he has a twin track regarding uh, God speaking into his life, and that is is that um, he, on the one hand, he understands the importance of God's Word. He's been trained at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's got all of that stuff rattling around inside of his head and all of that training there. And he still believes that God has given him some grand vision and speaks to him directly, and and the, the two things are battling with each other. And uh, unfortunately, with uh, this book... Um, we're not we're not getting a a true biblical picture of anything. What we're getting is really kind of um, well, Stephen Furtick's chasing after the wind. L- listen in. Okay, you can't see it, but what's happening is is that it's a picture of a of a gas station somewhere there in uh, in North Carolina obviously and it's got the older ca- gas pumps it doesn't have the digital gas pumps it has the ones with the rolling numbers on it and uh, ironically i'm sure that, that that you know this was all put together uh, you know, with the publisher as as part of a way of promoing this uh uh his book i wonder if this was made prior to the bp oil spill because the uh the gas station that's being featured in this particular a uh, snippet by uh, uh, Stephen Furtick is a BP oil station. Uh, so. All right, now here's Stephen Furtick. He's gotten out of a very nice car, dressed in just a snappy, snappy, snappy suit. I mean, great pink tie. and I mean, he he's overdressed for the gas station. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been dressed to the nines for an event, like a wedding or, or maybe an important reception, and, uh, and along the way you had to stop at a gas station and get out and pump gas, and when you do, you realize, I am completely overdressed for the gas station. I mean, here I am in a suit and a tie, and I'm pumping gas, and you almost feel like you look so silly and out of place 
that you have to explain to everybody around you, whether they ask or not. Hey, I'm uh, I'm headed to a wedding. That, that's why I'm dressed like this. And don't don't worry, it's all good. And and the thing is, I, I feel like in my life, as as God has spoken to my heart and placed visions inside of me. Okay, did you hear that? As God has spoken to my heart and placed visions inside of me. I mean, apparently, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I don't. There's there, there's only one category that we're dealing with at this point. That's prophet. So God is speaking directly into the heart of Stephen Furtick and putting visions inside of him. So he's now acting as a prophet, getting direct extra-biblical revelation from God. Sometimes I find myself overdressed for the place where I am on my way to where God is taking me. Okay, so the best example I can give you from my ministry of a time when I felt... Notice who he's talking about. The best example I can give you from my ministry. God's talking to my heart. God's giving me visions in my heart. This is narcissism. This is narcissism. And it can't be supported from the Bible, but it can be supported by subjective supposed visions directly from God to him. This is a chasing after the wind. And this explains a lot of the struggle and the and the, the reason why Furtick wrestles with the things that he is wrestling with. And that has to do with the fact that he has not resigned himself to let God's word be the sole authority when it comes to God in his life. He has a twin track. He is an enthusi- he's an enthusiast. He's getting extra biblical direct revelation from God. And here's the problem with it, okay? I'm going to basically make the claim that since this puts him automatically into the category of a prophet, he is either a true prophet or a false prophet, that because the emphasis here is on self, because the emphasis is on self and pulls us away from Christ and requires us to allegorize and misapply the Bible, that unfortunately... Stephen Furtick falls into the category of a false prophet, not a true prophet. Therefore, we should not listen to the dreams and visions that he claims are coming from God, but instead we must push back and say, no, these dreams and visions don't point us to Christ. They point us away from Christ and point us to you, Pastor Furtick. Therefore, these visions and dreams do not have their origin in the mind of God, but somewhere else, either in your own mind or or of a, well, diabolical origin. Like I was completely out of place in context of the vision that God had given me in comparison to the place where I was. Our church was about two months old, and we had a huge Easter event. We actually rented helicopters and dropped thousands of plastic Easter eggs out of the helicopters onto a football field and then gave away prizes. Um, there were different tickets in the eggs, and we gave away flat-screen TVs and Wiis and Xboxes. It was amazing. None of the parents ended up going to jail for beating up another parent to get their kid the flat-screen TV. And so the next morning on Easter Sunday, I stood up in front of our church of about 200 people, and I said, wasn't it amazing to have 2,000 people at our, at our Easter event? Okay, I want to point something out. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he said and let this sink in. On Easter Sunday, he says, quote, 
Wasn't it amazing to have 2,000 people at our Easter egg event, the helicopter and the plastic egg drop? What's Easter Sunday about again? Oh, yeah. The amazing good news that Jesus Christ rose again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So all the glory that goes to Christ in his victorious resurrection from the grave is stolen. And the glory then is put on Pastor Furtick for having this vision and uh, Elevation Church for being so wise enough to follow his vision. And then they're reveling and basking in the glory of the event that they held rather than on Easter Sunday to worship and focus solely on Christ crucified and risen for our sins and for our justification. You see, he's a prophet. At this point, because he's getting direct revelation from God, he has now entered into the realm of a prophet. That's what somebody who claims to be getting direct information from God is, biblically. So now, is he a true prophet or is he a false prophet? Well, I'm, I have to judge based upon the focus of uh, these visions is on himself and his own church and his own grandiose plans and dreams for him and his church, that these visions are not from God. Because God the Holy Spirit points us to Christ, convicts the world of sin and unbelief, points us to Christ. If you study the, the teachings of the apostles, they were singularly focused on Christ and what he had done. The gospel accounts say nothing about the, quote, you know, the the grand vision that Jesus had for Peter's ministry. That was like the last thing on his mind. He was singularly focused on proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins and over and again telling the stories of the Jesus whom he had spent three years with who was so loving and kind as to die for his sins and to restore him to ministry, to feed Christ's sheep, despite the fact that Peter, a sinner, had so egregiously denied his only Lord and Savior. I don't, you don't see the Apostle Paul talking in these big grandiose visions about, you know, oh, I want to be used by God and have this big impact. No, he just went out and preached Christ and him crucified for our sins and let God do, well, he didn't let God do it, but God did what God does when that happens. And Paul says, I chose to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. Here, Pastor Furtick and a lot of these seeker-driven guys, uh, they know nothing except for themselves and their visions. Yesterday, and they all cheered, wow, amazing. And so then I was like, what are we going to do starting next Easter when we have 2,000 people every single Sunday? Crickets. Nobody cheered. Nobody said amen. Nobody backed me up. I'm just standing there on the stage casting this vision for 2,000 people coming to our church. And it was one of the most awkward moments of my pastoral career. I felt completely out of place, like I'm dressed in a suit at a gas station, telling our church we're going to have 2,000 people, when the 200 people who are sitting there are kind of like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. And I want to prepare you. 
you're going to feel like that a lot of times when you're praying for the sun to stand still. Everybody around you isn't all. You're going to feel like that when you're praying for the sun to stand still. Yeah, by the way, the story of the sun standing still, um, that's not some normative thing that we're called to do. Christ says that when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yeah, that's... When Jesus said, when you pray, say... I mean, nothing there about praying for the sun to stand still. In fact, you don't have any examples of anybody in either the Old Testament or the New Testament after this event with Joshua, quote, praying for the sun to stand still. Yeah, see, I mean, this is basically chasing after the narcissistic wind. Somehow God exists to help you, you know, to give you a dream and a vision so that you can pray the impossible. Yeah, the funny thing is is that none of the disciples taught this. So I have to make the claim that uh, as well-meaning and and passionate and zealous and gifted and talented that uh, Stephen Furtick is, the reason he wrestles with the demons that he wrestles with is because this is not a coherent theology that he's subscribing to, and he's ultimately self-absorbed and self-focused and narcissistic in his thinking, and God exists to give him grand visions of greatness for his life and his ministry. And Stephen Furtick is the one who gets the glory, not Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. Always going to understand what God has put inside of you. That's okay. In order to see the sun stand still, in order to walk in audacious faith, to dare to believe God for the impossible, you've got to be willing to look ridiculous from time to time. You know, I, I, I'm not called to believe God for the impossible in my life. I'm called to believe God for the forgiveness of my sins in Christ. I guess you can say, make an argument, that really sounds impossible, but yet, yet Christ rose from the grave. But when you get to where God is taking you, they won't be laughing at you anymore. Like, I want you to identify in your life one area where, where God may be calling you to look ridiculous in audacious faith, um, an area where God is calling you to do the exact opposite of what everybody else is doing. And in your mind, you, you've known for some time, God is calling me to this. God is stretching me in this area. This is pure subjectivity apart from the Word of God. I mean, seriously, I mean, how do you know that this grand dream or vision that you think that God may or may not have given you to, you know, to have this audacious faith in the impossible or whatever, how do you know that really that the origin of that is not, is basically you're suffering from low blood sugar? You know, have a candy bar. It'll go away. How do you know it's not just a piece of undigested beef? How do you know it's not just your own sinful ego burbling up and and poking its head up and saying, oh, I want to be noticed? How do you know that any of this stuff actually has its origin in the mind of God himself? How do you know it's not from Satan? 
you. But every time you go to make that move, you start looking around the gas station, worrying about what all the other people at the gas station are going to think. And, and, and the point is, you're not dressing for the gas station. You're dressing for the wedding. We've got to learn to dress for, for the place that God has prepared for us. Uh, which of the apostles taught any of this? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, Bartholomew, Thaddeus. I mean, and any of them? Can you think of any? Did Jesus teach any of this stuff? Not the place where, where he's preparing us for that place. In other words, we, we've got to learn in the process between what I call the payoff and God's promise to embrace those small beginnings and, and not be afraid to step out on faith and to speak God's word and to structure our lives. Not for What's really funny is, is that what he's communicating actually has elements. You can hear the theological elements of the word faith heresy in this. Where we are, but for where we're going. Let me ask you a question. Is there something God's calling you to do to activate your faith? Calling me to do to activate my faith. Who was the last person I heard use that phrase? Activate. Oh, yeah, it was Joel Osteen. Uh, Can you show me a single verse in the Bible that talks about activating faith? Is there a prayer he's calling you to pray? and a corresponding motion that he's calling you to make in, in, in advancing toward the answer to that prayer that is going to make you look ridiculous to the people around you? Um, where's an area in your life where God has told you to do something or believe something or prepare for something, but you've dressed down and backed down because of the people around? And- now, by the way, um, <clears throat> you're sitting there going, well, Chris, you know, you never talk about, you know, how pirate Christian radio came into existence and all that kind of stuff. Isn't that some kind of a grand dream or vision that God gave you? No. <laughs> nope. I wish I could say that it was. And as for it, you know, if you were to ask where, you know, where did God tell you to do the things that you're doing? I would point you to Titus chapter one, Titus chapter two. I would point you to both uh, first and second Timothy in the passages of Scripture that talk about rightly handling God's Word and rebuking those who teach false doctrine and sharply rebuking them. I, I, yeah, I can't think of a single moment where I can say, you know, I, what I, you know, I had this grand dream and vision that God stuck in my heart, and I just had to find out how to dress for the wedding, even though I was at the gas station and people were, you know, and no, I, God's Word says to do these things. And so I'm doing him. And the reality is, is that this is not some grand vision that I was chasing. I mean, the, I'll be just put it blunt. Um, I was shanghaied by God to, uh, to do Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, those of you who know me and know the story, uh, would, uh, would, are you all shaking your head in agreement? Right. I was shanghaied. That's the the best way I can say it. God clubbed me. I was I blacked out and I woke up and I was on on Pirate Christian Radio. That's how this happened. And yet the thing I stand on is God's clear word in the scripture that talk about teaching sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. I I can't point you to some vision inside my heart. I have to point you to something outside of me to where I know where God has spoken. And yet 
Stephen Furtick is basically turning you inward. What's that big thing that God wants you to look foolish about? Where in the Bible does it say that God wants us to look foolish? Oh, yeah, in the preaching of Christ. Because, you see, the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to the world. See, that's not what he's talking about here. You need to look foolish regarding some, you know, the, some vision that God's given you for the future. And you need to look foolish. Uh, the foolishness I want to experience in my life is the foolishness of preaching the cross. And, and what will you do in the next few days to really start to dress up again, to prepare? Are there relationships that you need to adjust? Are you speaking in line with where God is taking you, or have you settled into comfortable doubt? What's it going to look like for you to dress for the wedding, not the gas station? I mean, this is just chasing your tail. I, oh, man. Because I promise you this, when you see the sun stand still, when you experience God doing the impossible, when, when you get to the wedding, the place God has prepared for you, you'll be awfully glad that you didn't take your cues from the people at the gas station. You'll be glad that you dressed your life for the place you were going. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, again, where is any of this taught in the Bible? Not the place where you are. Yeah, you, just so you know, I, uh, I uh, put a phone call into Stephen Furtick and requested him to come onto the radio to discuss Sun Stand Still, his, his forthcoming book. I seriously doubt that he will come onto the program. But I just want to let you know I've put the invitation out there. Uh, you know, the one thing about the seeker-driven guys, they won't answer biblical and theological questions. No way, no how. It'd be fun to see him come onto the program and, you know, try to defend this biblically. But the one thing I've learned about the seeker-driven guys they are they talk a big game but when it comes to actually getting onto the field and playing it they always take their toys and go home anyway if we're up on our first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter my name there pirate christian we'll be right back Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. 
So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put dang. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659.
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. today warning trying to divine some spiritual god speaking into your heart is like chasing the wind it's all subjectivity knock it off and open up the bible Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. That's right. This is a partnership. I do the hard work of uh, researching, reading, and developing this program, and you enjoy it. And then you partner with us by helping us uh, financially so that we can continue bringing this important program to you as well as to the world. And uh, the way you partner with us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. From the Al Mohler blog, headline reads, On Darwin and Darwinianism, a letter to Professor Giberson. That's right, Dr. Albert Mohler has responded to Carl Giberson, who uh, published a hit piece in the uh, Huffington Post, and uh, and uh, his response is, uh, well, in typical Albert Mueller fashion, it's brilliant. Here's uh, what uh, Dr. Mueller wrote. Dear Professor Giberson, I read with interest your posting at the Huffington Post. Uh, it brought to my attention by friends. I will respond by means of this open letter. Though your tone and chosen form are not indicative of any serious desire for an honest exchange. Your choice of a secular website, well known for its more liberal leanings, is quite a statement in itself. Did you write this in order to gain the favorable attention of the readers at the Huffington Post? If so, presumably you have your reward, but your tone, hardly the tone of a serious scholar or scientist, is even more disappointing. You make quite a shocking list of accusations. You suggest that I do not, quote, seem to care about the truth and that I seem to, quote, quite content uh, to quite content to make stuff up when it serves my purpose. Those are not insignificant charges. You say that I made false statements about Charles Darwin. I would not want to do that. So I have once again looked carefully at the evidence. 
I have read your posting several times, and it seems that your central complaint comes down to one or possibly two sentences in my address to the 2010 Ligonier Ministries National Conference. Indeed, you provide a link to the transcript of my address that was posted at the BioLogos site. You point to this section of my address where I said, quote, Darwin did not embark upon the beagle having no preconceptions of what exactly he was looking for or having no theory of how life emerged in all of its diversity and fecundity and specialization. Darwin left on his expedition to prove the theory of evolution. You complain that this was a misrepresentation of Darwin, and you answer that with considerable bombast. In your words, quote, of course, Muller may simply have made a mistake. He is, after all, a theologian and not a historian. He could have gotten his wrong idea from any number of his fellow anti-Darwinians. However, I don't think so. In his address, he read from my book, Saving Darwin, in which I took some pains to correct the all-too-common misperception or mispresentation of Darwin that he presented. So unless he was just cherry-picking ideas from my book... That he, wanted, that he wanted to assault, he should have known better. But let us bend over backwards here and give him the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps his only real encounter with saving Darwin, Darwin was an instruction to an assistant to find something in Giberson's book that I can ridicule in my speech. <clears throat> That's what Giberson wrote about uh, Muller. Muller responds, he says, No, I can assure you that my encounter with saving Darwin comes through reading the book quite thoroughly and more than once. You are at great pains to present an understanding of Darwin that will appeal to conservative Christians who are committed to biblical Christianity. You have a great challenge in this respect, and I seriously doubt that you will make much headway. You are determined to convince biblical Christians to accept evolution. I seriously doubt that you will make much progress through your book. In making my argument, I did not need to cherry-pick ideas from your book, nor do I need to misrepresent Darwin and his views. I would be most interested and concerned to find that I have in any way misquoted or misrepresented you. I am confident that your larger problem with the Christian public is in being understood rather than in being misunderstood. You are straightforward in your celebration of evolution, and you utterly fail to demonstrate how an embrace of evolution can be reconciled with biblical Christianity. Your rejection of a historical Adam and Eve is one precise point at which the gospel of Christ is undermined, and your proposed, quote, new and better way to understand the origins of sin is incompatible with the Bible's clear teaching. The theory of evolution is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even as it is in direct conflict with any faithful readings of Scripture. Darwin's historic role in the development of evolutionary theory is central and significant, but the theological objections to evolution are not centered in the person of Darwin, but in the structure and implications of his theory of natural selection. But, given the specific nature of your complaint, I now cite the larger context of the statement from the provided transcript of my Ligonier address. Here's what I said. Quote, the second great challenge was the emergence of Darwin's theory of evolution. Coming at the midpoint of the 19th century, we need to be reminded that Darwin was not the first evolutionist. We need to be reminded that Darwin did not embark upon the beagle having no preconceptions of what exactly he was looking for or having no theory of how life emerged in all of its diversity, fecundity, and specialization. 
Darwin left on his expedition to prove the theory of evolution, a theory that was based upon the fossil record and other inferences that had already been able to make from the uh, to take the hold in, of some in Western civilization. The dawn of the theory of evolution presents a direct challenge to the traditional interpretation of Genesis and, as we shall see, to much more. You cannot possibly disagree with this sentence, with this, with any sentence of this paragraph, save one. Darwin was certainly not the first evolutionist. His grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was a well-known evolutionist long before Charles Darwin set foot aboard the Beagle. One difficulty here, of course, is the word evolution, which was not even Charles Darwin's preferred word. In any event, evolutionary ideas were already present within Victorian society in Britain, even if it would have if it would be left to Charles Darwin to develop the theory of natural selection. I do not deny that the intellectual impact of Darwin's own theory uh, evolution is not often known as Darwinianism by accident. The one sentence central to your complaint is this. Darwin left on his expedition to prove the theory of evolution. Now, upon further reflection, I would accept that the statement appears to misrepresent to some degree Darwin's intellectual shifts before and during his experience on the Beagle. At the same time, the intellectual context of Darwin's times and of his own family in particular leave no room to deny that some form of of developmentalism had to be in the background of his own thinking, presumably consistent with his own acceptance of a natural theology and an argument from design. Long before Charles Darwin reached adulthood, his own grandfather had affirmed the natural ascent of all life. I am happy to correct any misrepresentation of Charles Darwin's intellectual ambitions, but the sentence has no consequential bearing upon my larger argument or my rejection of Darwinianism. And if a misrepresentation of Charles Darwin is the central issue, I must insist that it is you who offers the truly dangerous misrepresentation. In Saving Darwin, you attempt at great lengths to present Charles Darwin as a rather conventional and orthodox Christian prior to his later loss of faith. You state that he was, quote, born to a well-to-do British family who, despite having some unorthodox characters listed in the family Bible, raised him in the Anglican church, educated him in an Anglican school, and put him on the train to Edinburgh to study medicine. This hardly seems adequate or straightforward. The some unorthodox characters listed in the family Bible included both his father and his paternal grandfather. His mother's family was Unitarian in belief, rejecting the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Even as Charles Darwin was nominally involved in the Anglican Church, largely through the influence of his sister and brother-in-law after the death of his mother, his involvement and exposure appears to me largely incidental in his life. He later married a woman of Unitarian convictions as well. It is certainly true that Charles Darwin was directed to become an Anglican clergyman by his unbelieving father, but this was a social tradition for second sons of the developing British middle class. As Randall Keynes, Darwin's own great-great-grandson, explains, quote, His idea was to become a country parson, caring for his parishioners but living for natural history. And as the authoritative biographers Adrian Desmond and James Moore recount, quote, Dr. Darwin, a confirmed freethinker, was sensible and shrewd. He had only to look around him, recall the vicarages he had visited, and ponder the country parsons he entertained at home. 
One did not have to be a believer to see that an aimless son with a penchant for field sports would fit in nicely. Was the church not a haven for dullards and dawdlers and the last resort of spendthrifts? What calling but the highest for those whose sense of calling was nil? A far greater concern is your tendency, Dr. Gibson, to appear to agree with some of Darwin's complaints against biblical Christianity. You claim that he, quote, boarded the beagle with his childhood Christian faith intact, but then add, quote, although he had begun to wonder about the historicity of more fanciful Old Testament stories like the Tower of Babel, this is insignificant? This is insignificant? Are we to understand that you, too, see the, that biblical accounts as fanciful? You explain that Darwin, like most uh, thoughtful believers, began to distance himself from the doctrine of hell, a doctrine you describe as a secondary doctrine that even many conservatives reject. If your intention in saving Darwin is to show how to be a Christian and to believe in evolution, what you've actually succeeded in doing is to show how much doctrine Christianity has to surrender in order to accommodate itself to evolution. In doing this, you and your colleagues at Biologos are actually doing us all a great service. You are showing us what the acceptance of evolution actually costs in, ther- in terms of theological concessions. I stand by my address in full, and I only wish I had been able to address these issues at greater length in, it, in that context. I plan to do that over the next few months. I greatly regret that you have committed yourself to the cause that I can see as incompatible with Scripture and destructive to the Christian faith. Sincerely, R. Albert Moeller, Jr., President, Joseph Emerson Brown, Professor of Christian Theology, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Louisville, Kentucky. I don't think I need to comment on that. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review. You don't want to miss this one. This is a sermon you've already heard before if you're an evangelical. did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Now, this is a sermon you've already heard before. Sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via LifeChurch.tv. Seeker-driven leadership guru extraordinaire and basically mega superstar among the seeker-driven church planters. Craig Groeschel presiding over this sermon, and the name of it is entitled Toxic Relationships. Now, as I've already explained, this is a sermon that is that really doesn't have its origin in Craig Groeschel. This is a sermon I heard growing up in, in American evangelicalism. This is probably a sermon that you've heard, you know, Bad company corrupts good character. That foolish talk is like gangrene. These are themes you're probably all familiar with. Yeah, but wait until you put those verses back in context. Yeah, one of the things I have said earlier. Since becoming a confessional Lutheran, I've never heard this sermon ever again. The reason why is because it's impossible to preach it when you put these verses back in context. So get your Bibles out, and uh, two places you want to go. First is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I think verse 33 is where we're looking there. And then also put a marker at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. So let me uh, kill the music here without any further ado. Here is uh, Craig Rochelle, LifeChurch.tv, the sermon entitled Toxic Relationships. Step into the party, pull my windbreaker, fast shoelaces, can't nobody take us. Yes, yes, y'all, and the DJ calling, the party don't start until the sunshine's falling. Yeah, yeah, that's part of the um, sermon. Break it down, break it down, say, what? Break it down, break it down, say, what? Break it down, break it down, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. 
the people in your life, they can be the greatest spiritual asset or they can be your worst spiritual curse. The people around you, they can be a tremendous spiritual asset, the right people who lift you, encourage you, equip you spiritually. The wrong people, though, they can be incredibly distracting and destructive and poisonous in your life if you are not careful. In fact, right now, I bet at all of our locations, there are many of you that you probably can think of someone who's a negative influence. They're always critical, always griping, always harping on things, maybe tempting you. How many of you would say, honestly, I can think of someone that after I'm with them, I feel worse about myself and life rather than better? How many of you would say that would be the case? Hands going up everywhere. In fact, uh, I've said this before, but chances are many of you, you're thinking of family members right now, and that's with good reason because there's a spiritual principle that every family has a psycho. It's a proven spiritual principle. Just to prove it, if, if I can get you to participate with me, this is really important. All of our locations, how many of you would say unquestionably in my family, could be the extended family, there is a very difficult psycho. Would you raise your hand right now? Raise, leave, leave them up if you will. Leave them up. Just everyone, leave them up. Leave them up. I want you to look now around, around. Notice the people that do not have their hands in the air. Just remember, there's one in every family, and you are the one. We're talking today about toxic relationships, and what I'd like to do is just go ahead and get a working definition of toxic. If you're taking notes, uh, write this down. Something toxic is anything containing poisonous material capable of causing sickness or even death. It's anything containing poisonous material capable of causing sickness or even death. And if you haven't thought of it this way, people contain something very poisonous. The Bible calls it sin. Okay, so here we're pitching the problem, and this, this is the pitching part of the, part of the sermon. Now, most sermons kind of follow this particular type of structure. You know, they, they pitch the problem first and then open up the Bible to find the solution. I don't think that this is a very constructive way of uh, doing a sermon, by the way. Because uh, if you're preaching biblically... Uh, the Bible doesn't always, at least not every text pitches a problem, okay? It teaches us things that ultimately come back to our ultimate problem, and that is our sinful nature, our rebellion against God, and our need for forgiveness won by Christ on the cross. Everything can kind of be tied back to that, but not every passage of Scripture easily lends itself in that direction. So, you, you know, but you get what I'm saying. Not every passage is a problem-solution passage. Okay, so we're not beginning in the Bible here. We're basically beginning with, well, every one of us in our family. Well, we we know we well, there's there's toxic relationships. There are people who are just toxic. They tear you down. They uh, they 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 have bad character and and they're a drain on us. And maybe you're that person. But the the problem is sin. I'm glad he said sin. I mean that's kind of a forbidden word nowadays. But let's see if he actually gets back to it. Um, but so that's the problem. We, we, the problem is we got toxic people. And sin is capable of causing sickness or even spiritual death. In fact, I think that's why the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He said, 
don't be misled. Do not be misled. And I think the reason he said this is because it's so easy to be misled. We may think, you know, hanging out with this person is not that big of a deal. Now, it sounds like he's doing biblical preaching, right? He says, I, and look, I think the reason he said don't be misled, and, and you know, he, it sounds like he's exegeting the, the verse. Hang on a second. They're not that dangerous, but he says, no, 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 do not be misled. Help me out. He said, bad company, what does it do? Say it aloud. He said, bad company corrupts good character. Bad company, it corrupts good character. Now, I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to think, well, good company lifts up bad character. I mean, if I'm there and I'm good, I'm going to lift up those around me. But Scripture says, no, 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 don't be misled. More often than not, the bad company is going to pull you down rather than you pulling people up. I'll give you- okay, I'm going to pause right there. If you have your Bibles open, I told you ahead of time where we were going to go. Flip on over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, as I was uh, reviewing a portion of the sermon, funny enough, I haven't reviewed this entire sermon. This is one of the ones where I reviewed maybe about halfway through, so I don't know where he's going to land. Um, you know, but I, you can kind of see the arc and the trajectory of where we're going. Um, when he, when when I was reviewing this, and he had us go to First Corinthians fifteen, the first thing that came to my mind—I mean, as somebody who's read First Corinthians fifteen uh, uh, so many times, I can't even you know tell you—and I have portions of it memorized. Um, I mean, in First Corinthians fifteen, it begins with a, with a clarification and a reminder of the of the gospel that Paul preached, and then it launches into a long-running argument regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, um, I mean, that's really the the big context of 1 Corinthians 15. And so much so that, I mean, really, this is a great passage to preach at funerals. Those of you pastors out there, uh, if, you want a, if you want a funeral text, this is the good one to go to. And so what I'm going to do is, I, I'm going to, he's, he is quoted 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 33, out of context, that says, Do not be deceived, God, a bad company ruins good morals, or in his translation, good character. I mean, it's like he's reaching into this brilliant chapter here that focuses us on Christ. He's ripped it out of context, and he's now making a moral application to basically talking about who do you hang around with. You know, if you're hanging around with people who are tearing you down, who are bad moral influences, well, <laughs> bad company ruins good character. Well, let's put it back in context and see what Paul was trying, the, the bigger gist of what was going on. Remember, the three primary rules are the, the, the three most important rules when it comes to sound biblical understanding are context, context, and context. Because yeah, when you put a verse back in context, 99% of the time you can see a Bible twist because you get, oh, wow. So let's see what happens when we put this in context. Well, watch with me and see, and see if, he had, if he was preaching 1 Corinthians 15, if he would make, be making the same emphasis that he's making right now. Uh, so we begin uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it, it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Yeah, believe it or not, there were folks in the Corinthian church who were saying, ah, there's no such thing as the resurrection. They were like Sadducees. And it didn't make any sense because Christ was proclaimed and preached to them as crucified and risen from the grave. So Paul now launches into an apologetic defense of the resurrection says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then, well, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep died in Christ. Well, they've perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits then, at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in, in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected uh, he he is expected who put all things in subjection subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if I, humanly speaking, if I fought with the beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But some will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen in each kind of seed its own body. 
For not all flesh is the same, there, but there is one kind of, uh, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for, for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly one is the is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life, uh, living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now you're thinking, okay, I see the greater context. This was one long-running argument about the resurrection. And the verse 1533, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals, was talking about those who are teaching falsely about the resurrection. It wasn't talking about those who are trying to influence you to smoke or to drink or to engage in worldly things, although that, that, that would, you know, anyone who's trying to encourage you to sin you know, that that would fall into this category. But in the greater context, what this verse is talking about is false doctrine and false belief regarding the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Christ. So the corruption being spoken of directly in the passage in context is a corruption that that really has as its core false teaching. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, put it back in its context, and you get to see what's really going on. Well, let's see what Craig Groeschel does with this, because he's going to now take another verse out of context and stick it together with this one. And the one, the next one is coming from 2 Timothy chapter 2, so if you want to flip over there, you'll be ready. Let's continue. Be an example, my um, uh, years ago, my oldest two daughters, Katie and Mandy, they were maybe five and four. They were outside playing uh, with their friends, and Katie came busting in the house. She said, Daddy, you're not going to believe this. Mandy said a bad word. She said a really, really bad word. I was like, baby, what did she say? And she said, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to repeat it. I said, just tell me what did it start with. She said, Daddy, Mandy said the BS word. I had the same thought. I was like, where did she? I said, where did she hear that? She said, I asked her that, and she heard from her friends. The B, and I was like, bad company. I'm thinking to myself, which one of your kids taught my daughter the BS word? And so I called Mandy in. I said, baby, where? Notice here, um, the, the, just in his telling of the story, the assumption is his daughter has good character that's been corrupted. What about the fact that we are dead in trespasses and sin by nature, and we're all sinners by nature? You, you don't want to talk about toxic relationships. I mean, pretty much any relationship you're a part of, you're being toxic in it because of your sinfulness. That's not how he's pitching this, though. Did you hear that she said, oh, one of my friends, and, I, and she's all crying and stuff. She said, I shouldn't have said it. I said, just, just, I, I just wanted to be clear. I said, can you tell me? 
just whispered in my ear, what does BS stand for? She said, I'm not going to say it again, Dad. I'm so sorry. I said, no, please just, you have permission. You're not getting in trouble. Just tell me what BS stands for. Mandy looked at me. She said, Daddy, everybody knows it stands for Britney Spears. <laughs> Very, t- I don't know which one of your kids is saying Britney Spears around my kids, but bad company corrupts good character. Now, obviously, obviously that's just a joke, but on a, on a more serious note, what I want you to understand is that that bad company, it corrupts, it pollutes, it poisons, it destroys. In fact, I'll show you a verse that's very extreme, and I want you to understand this is just how toxic the wrong relationships can be. 2 Timothy 2, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, avoid what? Would you say it aloud? He says, avoid godless chatter. Don't, don't get around this godless chatter, sinful talk, sinful people. Okay, notice how, what, okay, here, look what he did. He took uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 out of context. And he has defined godless chatter as sinful talk. Uh, Let's see what, uh, we'll we'll put this back in context in just a second here. I want to show you what he does with it. Because those who indulge in it will become what? They will become more and more ungodly. If we engage in godless chatter, if we're hanging out with the toxic people, we're not going to become more godly. Instead, they're going to corrupt good character, and we're going to become more and more ungodly. Now watch this. Verse 17 says they're teaching what they do. It will spread like what? It will spread like gangrene. Now, I did a little research on gangrene. i got to tell you, this is one nasty disease. What it is, is it can start from just a, a simple, very small infection, and the blood or the life stops flowing to a part of the body, and then a part of the body literally dies. And what I want to do is I want to show you some pictures in a moment, but first let me just warn you that what I'm going to show you is nasty and disgusting. That's right. He's going to show his, con- he showed his congregation pictures of gangrene. To help make his point. Now, notice he's talking in the context of bad morals. If you have a weak stomach, do not look. I will not accept any emails telling me that this was gross. Just close your eyes, turn away, and do not complain. But what I want you to do is I want you to get a picture of what bad company can do. It's a sickness that can destroy. Let me show you some different pictures of what gangrene looks like. Here's one. This is just kind of not too bad. If Anytime, go, let's look at another one. If you want to just go, ooh, when we see it, you're welcome to go, ooh. Okay, you think that one's bad. It gets worse, so just hang in there. Don't look if you don't want to. Here's another one. That's just nasty. That, that You should see my other foot. Yeah, okay, just, just joking. Let's take a look at another one. Here's, uh, look at that. Look at that. Okay, you ready? Now, don't look if you want the grossest one, in my opinion. Ready for this one? It's going to eat the toe off. Okay? Now, you take the pictures away, and those of you that weren't looking, you can look now again. See? It's my happy face. Okay? Okay, now, I'm going to stop there. So, you've seen what he's done here. So, the groundwork is 1 Corinthians 15.33 out of context, because the bad com- the, the bad company that's corrupting good character the bad company is those who are teaching falsely about the resurrection of Jesus. 
Now let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, if you have your Bibles, flip on over there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I will begin at the beginning of chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others. So this is a pastoral letter written by the Apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy, encouraging him to take what he's learned from the Apostle Paul, his apostolic teaching, and to entrust it to faithful men who are also able to teach. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who is who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, though he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which don't, does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it, is, it will lead into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene among them, are Hymenaeus and Philaetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Okay, So there it is in context, talking about foolish talk. Well, what would foolish talk be? False doctrine, false teaching. An example of this type of gangrenous talk would be Hymenaeus and Philaetus, who have swerved from the truth, and they say that the resurrection has already happened. They're teaching falsely. They've departed from the apostolic teaching about Christianity and the gospel and have basically, from within their own hearts, their own theologizing ego, has burbled up uh, this false teaching that the resurrection has already happened. So in both cases... 1 Corinthians 15:33 and 2 Timothy 16 and 17 the gangrene the bad company that corrupts good character is false doctrine false teaching if Craig Groeschel were preaching these texts in context he could not possibly be coming up with the emphasis that he's doing. And the reason why is because he's moralizing at this point. This is all law, no gospel. And it. the reality is, th this is the irony. Are you ready? 
the texts that he's quoting, when you read them in context, actually are saying and convicting and accusing Craig Groeschel of being the gangrene and Craig Groeschel of being the bad character or the bad company that's corrupting good character because he is twisting God's word and teaching it falsely. That's the irony here. When you put this back in context, it makes perfect sense. And this explains why I've never heard the sermon uh, after leaving evangelicalism. I've never heard it since because the pastors that uh, that pastor me, uh, they always teach, they always preach exegetically. They let the text dictate what the message is going to be, and they faithfully exegete God's Word. Craig Groeschel is doing the exact opposite of what he ought to be doing, and in a very weird way, in a very strange irony. These texts, when, when read in context, come back to accuse him and point the bony finger at him and say, he's the gangrene. He's the bad company because he's not correctly handling God's word and teaching things that ought not to be taught. At the count of three, everybody say, ew, one, two, three. That's nasty, isn't it? I mean, that's just, that's just, that's gross. But what I want you to see is that is a picture of what the wrong relationships can do to someone that is otherwise healthy, toxic relationships. Let me give you three different types of toxic company. There would be more, but in my opinion, these would be the most common three. The first type... Now, listen carefully. Is he going to list one of the toxic relationships as the relationship of uh, a student to a false teacher? That's what he should be doing if he's correctly handling God's Word. If you're taking notes, there are those who are chronically negative. Whenever you're with them, they, they drag you down. They're incredibly judgmental, they're critical, they're gossiping, they're complaining. Nothing is ever good enough for them. These would be the people of Israel. If you remember the Old Testament, God delivers them out of bondage, and they're like, oh, if we could only go back into slavery, this is horrible, we're tired of this. And they're just whining, complaining, constantly, chronically negative. How many of you know someone like that? You say, I know someone like that. Don't point at them, just acknowledge that you do. Okay, quick question. Uh, do either 1 Corinthians 15 or 2 Timothy 2 mention those who are chronically negative? I just read them for you in context. If you're not sure, go and re- reread 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. The answer, by the way, is no, neither of these passages mention negative people. There's a second type, and that would be the group I would call the controllers. They're controllers. Okay, does the 1 Corinthians 15 or 2 Timothy chapter 2 mention the toxic relationship controllers? Nope. This is not taught in the Bible, and it's not taught in either of the passages that Craig Groeschel ripped out of context. They're overbearing. They're demanding. They're manipulative. That they might be abusive. They could use fear to intimidate you. Or perhaps you always feel guilty. I have to do this so I, I, they don't get mad at me. Uh, do any of you know someone that is a controller? You raise your hand. Some of you are going, I can't raise my hand because they won't let me. Okay? Case in, 
Case in point, there are, there's the chronically negative. There's the controller. Another type of very toxic company would be the tempters, those who are tempters. This could be your boyfriend that's always tempting you sexually, trying to push you to do something that you don't want to do. This could be uh, your buddies. You, you want to meet a great Christian girl, but they're always going clubbing, and they're always wanting you to go there, and you, you're just going to meet someone who's going to be drunk and vomit by 2 a.m. there. But- now, and by the way, temp- tempters, actually, that's a biblical category, but we would need a completely different set of passages to actually correctly teach us from the Bible, Okay. Uh, neither of the passages that he quoted mention, quote, tempters here. In both cases, it's mentioning those who are teaching false doctrine. Uh, however, that being said, you, you, I'll give credit to uh, to Craig Rochelle here on, on this sense, in this sense, and that is that um, temptation and, you know, those who are tempting us to sin, that is a, that's actually a biblical category. Controller and negative person, yeah, though that's, that's, that, that doesn't fall under that category. But you still go along. It could be like a buddy of mine who uh, is a firefighter, and he really wants to honor his wife and God with sexual purity in his mind. But every time he goes to the station, his his friends, they're always talking about uh, sinful stuff, and they're always pulling out pornography. He wants to be pure, and yet he's around this all the time. It, it may not be just what we'd call kind of the, the dirty sins. It could be that you've got a tempting friend that's incredibly materialistic, and every time you're with this person, you're just kind of sucked into it. You see the bling, and you, you want more, and you, you, you wish you had it, and it, it just kind of rubs off on you in a bad way. It's not that they're horrible people. It's just when you're around them, something happens. Uh, that is a problem. It's not that they're horrible people. Uh, Craig, uh, <laughs> what about the doctrine of original sin, what Scripture teaches, that we are all dead in trespasses and sins by nature and at war with God? No, it is that they are horrible people happens in you that's not good. Now remember, these different types of people, they sound rather annoying. I mean, they're negative, they're, they're you know, kind of tempting you, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're not just annoying, they can be toxic. They can be destructive. They can take you away from God's best and draw you into a lifestyle that could actually kill you or spiritually hurt you forever. Now, you mean send them to hell? Spiritually hurt you forever. That's kind of a weak way of talking about hell, don't you think? Let's kind of unpack this a little bit. Uh, Because all of us, we can be toxic in our own ways. In all relationships, our goal is always to minister. We are to minister to people. That's what we're, we're, we're to bring life. And so we're not going to go around, oh, toxic, run for you. That's not what we're going to do. But we have to stay spiritually healthy because if we're not spiritually healthy, then we cannot help people around us. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever been on an airplane uh, before you take off and they say, you know, the cabin pressure ever drops, there's an oxygen mass that's going to drop before you. Before assisting the person next to you, you need to secure your own mask. You know what I'm talking about? To me, that's always sounded selfish. It's like, why would you do that? Well, the reason is because if you cannot breathe, you cannot help anyone else. You're going to help people more if you're strong and healthy, and then you can make a difference. So what I want to do is look at... Make a difference. That's the purpose-driven... Uh... Um, great commission. 
It's not go and make disciples, it's go and make a difference. Yeah, that's a completely wrong um, commission. Just two very simple principles of how we learn to effectively and biblically manage toxic relationships. Two things if you're taking notes. The first thing is we have to learn to set healthy boundaries. We have to learn. Okay, where in the Bible does uh, does this, con- basically this is a pop psychology or a psychological category, setting healthy boundaries. Yeah, I've heard a lot of folks who've spent time with a therapist who come back talking about the need to set boundaries. Okay, great. Um, I could probably learn this concept from a, a, a somebody who's licensed and trained in psychology. Uh, but why am I hearing this from you, Pastor? Shouldn't you be really opening up God's Word and really teaching what it says? To set healthy boundaries. What, what does a boundary do? A boundary keeps the bad out, and it keeps the good in. A boundary keeps the bad out and keeps the good in. You know, that reminds me. Uh, what was that uh, Inspector Clouseau movie, uh, The Revenge of the Pink Panther, I, 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 where he, he found Inspector, he, Inspector Dreyfus was in, uh, Chief Inspector Dreyfus was in a loony farm and, and he was supposedly cured and Clouseau comes to visit him in, in, in his Clouseau's clumsy way. Uh, Dreyfus ends up, you know, having all these bizarre things happen to him and he ultimately ends up in a pond almost drowning to death. And, yeah, I remember Clouseau trying to resuscitate uh, Inspector Dreyfus. Yeah, that's uh, he was setting a boundary right there. Out with the bad and in with the... It's not that the people are just horrible, dangerous people, but there may be one part of the relationship that is dangerous to you, therefore dangerous. What about their sinners? They're sinners in need of a Savior and that they're they're dead in trespasses and sins. Hello? And so you want to keep that out. And again, this sounds like, oh, this doesn't sound very Christian. I mean, isn't that a wrong thing to do? Shouldn't we be loving? What we have to understand is it's actually a very Christ-like thing to do. You think about this. Jesus loved everyone equally, but he did not treat everyone equally. He recruited 12 people to be his disciples, not 200. Uh, When he would go into a town to heal people, he'd heal a few people out of the crowd, and then he'd leave, and sometimes he wouldn't heal everybody. I think about this. He would leave those who were closest to him, his disciples, and go up onto a mountaintop for 40 days to fellowship with God. He'd say, uh, you know, tell my assistant my calendar's clear for the next 40 days, and he'd leave, and they'd be like, where is he? What's he doing? Well, he was getting strong with God, so he could go back and minister to those who needed him. Um, boy, this is um, this is a unique Christology. I've never heard this before. Hmm. Yeah. See, if if you're hearing somebody preach something and you're sitting there going, "Gosh, that doesn't sound anything like any of the Christology that I've ever learned." or that any of the church fathers taught, or that, I clear, that is clearly discernible from the clear teachings of the Word of God, you should be careful with that kind of stuff. Yeah, this could be that kind of 
gangrene. This could be gangrene that we're hearing at this point. So you got to be careful. Think about how he handled the Pharisees, the kind of religious hypocrites. He, he had them, he had boundaries all the time. I'm not going there, I'm not listening to you, I'm not telling you everything, I'm keeping you at an arm's length. He had boundaries. He even had boundaries with his very closest friends whenever they tried to take him away from doing something God. Yeah, this boundary stuff here, this is all eisegesis. He's reading boundaries in. He's reading the psychological category of boundary making into the text. Yep. Yeah, this smells like gangrene. That kind of a, that really putrid, cheesy kind of, yeah. God wanted him to do. Think about Peter one time. Peter, one of the most on-fire Jesus guys. He's around Jesus, and Jesus is kind of given a, a lesson. He says, I'm going to have to give my life and die for you all, and then I'm going to come back. It's really a good thing. And Peter, with good intentions, says, no, I'm not going to let you die. There's no way I'm going to let that happen to you. And look at what Jesus said as he put up a very firm boundary with Peter. Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned back to Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. I had no idea that Jesus was laying down a boundary there. I thought he was rebuking Peter this entire time. I had no idea that what was really happening is that Jesus was erecting a boundary. Is that a boundary or what? I mean, we're talking strong. You are a... (laughs) Uh, Just because you say it is doesn't mean it is. Can you show me from the clear teachings of the apostle Peter that that was what Jesus was doing, that he was setting a boundary? stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, Peter, what you're saying, it's game green to me. Even though you don't mean it, the spiritual enemy is working through you to try to take me off of God's path. Get behind me, Satan. I am not going to let you trip me up. Now, I do not recommend that you say to your mother-in-law, you're gangrene to me. Get behind me, Satan. Do not do that, even though you may want to. But what you have to do is you have to be willing for the glory of God. What you have to do, what you have to do, what you have to do, what you... Uh, this is law. I'm Okay, will we get to the gospel? I don't know. So that you can better minister to other people, you have to be willing to set up some healthy boundaries at appropriate times. Two real simple ones, if you're taking notes, just very practical, very simple. Here's kind of how we'll do it. There may be times when someone is, uh, they're demanding, they're talking about the wrong things, they're tempting you, and what you're just going to do is you're going to say, I won't let you talk to me or treat me that way. It's not you're coming out swinging, you're not yelling, it's just very calmly you're putting up a healthy boundary and saying, I'm not going to let you talk to me like that or you can't treat me like that. And it's actually the right thing to do. For example, if you've got a friend who's always gossiping, have you ever noticed that in Christian circles, gossip is often found at prayer meetings? You know, you need to pray for so-and-so because you're not going to believe what she's doing. And, and, you know, you get maybe sucked into that, and it's very toxic. And so you're just going to say, you know what? If you're going to gossip like that, I'm not going to be a part. And if you continue to do so, I'm just going to walk away and go read a book. You're not a jerk. You're not mean. You're just going to say, I'm not going to, we're not going to go there. I'm not going to talk about that with you. Uh, ladies, you may be married. Now, by the way, uh, gossiping is absolutely a sin. Uh, scripture clearly teaches it. That being said, I mean, there's some very clear passages in the Bible 
that talk about the sin of gossip. And uh, I, I just don't understand why he's not in those passages. And instead, this is really the, well, gossip was just kind of the thing that was kind of sort of talked about. But the important thing apparently is uh, setting boundaries, but there's no boundary setting passages in the scripture. Then you've got some other lady friends and are always trash talking their husbands. He's not, and on and on and on and on. And, and that kind of gets in your soul and you, and you start having negative thoughts. You're just going to say, you know what? I'm going to honor my husband. He's a, he's a man of God. I believe in him. I'm going to speak the best. If you're going to go there, you guys can do that without me. I hope you don't. But I'm just not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to go there. You, you may have a... Um... You know, there's, this would be a great place to open up the scriptures and mention some of those Bibles, uh, pa- Bible passages. Gossip is a, is a terrible sin. Um, a buddy, guys, you go to the gym and this guy's coming up to you go, man, did you see her over there? She is hot. And you're like, no, I, I'm not going to pollute my mind with that. Just don't, you don't say that to me. I'm, it, it, There's a wonderful passage that Jesus talks about regarding lusting after people and it being adultery in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you can open up your Bible and actually, you know, read the Sermon on the Mount and let Jesus speak here. When you bring it up, I'm just not going to let I, I won't let you talk to me or treat me that way. It's very simple, very practical boundary, and you state it. You don't just hope they're going to understand or they're just magically going to absorb your boundary. You just draw a, a line in the sand and say, here is a boundary that we're not going to do that. The second thing is you might just say, I'm not going there with you, wherever there is. Whatever it is that you're doing that's not helpful I'm just not, I'm not going to be judging you and be all preacher man at you. I may tell you I disagree. I may tell you I think it's wrong, but I'm, I'm just not going there with you. Uh, your friends, maybe you had a problem with alcohol. You, you used to drink all the time, used to get drunk, and, and you've been clean and sober. And you've got some friends like, hey, we're going to the keg party. It's like, you know what? I really care for you. I want to be involved in your life. You're a good friend. But I'm just not going to the keg party. It's just that's not what I'm going to do. And you just, you just draw the line and you just say it. Uh, it could be, uh, ladies, you're married and an old boyfriend contacts you on Facebook. And he's, hey, I'm just glad to see you. I hope you're doing great. Could we get together for lunch sometime? And you're very polite, but you just say, I'm not going to go there with you. I'm married. I'm glad to hear from you, but that just wouldn't be right. You do not go there. And I want to just... Okay, now, in all of these scenarios that he's given, okay, he's, well, he's trying to give practical applications and advice here on how to avoid bad characters, you know, that that could corrupt you. And that's good and all. I Yeah, but here's the other aspect of this is that in this in the in the net that he's casting it just makes me wonder i mean are there people uh, that are listening to this uh, in his own church who are going ooh uh pastor um yeah that thing you said about gossip ooh that really hit home and the reason why is cuz that's exactly what i did you know like yesterday or some, you know, one of the married women in this church is hearing this and going, oh, man, that thing you said about the guy contacting you on Facebook. Yeah, I've, I've yep, I've been struggling with the, that temptation there and having lustful thoughts after my old boyfriend. And, you know, the, the, these the, at this point, the net that he's casting using the law 
the law automatically will do its work, which God's Word makes it clear the purpose of the law is to show us our sin, to make us aware of our sinfulness. So here he's preaching the law, and the problem at this point is is that he's using the law in such a way as to give you practical advice on how to not uh, give in to sin. And this is, uh, you know, I mean, it's as far as advice goes, I mean, I'm sure it's good advice. The other aspect of it, though, is is that he's not really aware of the fact that that uh, because he's using the the law at this point, it's a double edged sword, and so it's it's cutting uh, into people at this point, and uh, they're going to need to hear about the forgiveness of sins because there are people who are listening to this who are going, ooh, ouch. Ah, yeah, that's me. I oh, man, I did that. Yeah, and see, at that point, they're going to need some comfort. They're going to need to hear about the cross and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. I I I don't know if Pastor Groeschel is going to get there, but I just want to point out the fact that because of the way he's handling the law at this point, is only in as far as sin avoidance, he's uh well. He's not aware of the fact that he's also condemning people in his preaching at this point. Drive this point home for a minute because this is happening all the time. You do not go to lunch with an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend or start talking with them on Facebook. You just don't do that. They may not be a bad. The potential for a toxic relationship is there. You just don't do that. You're dating someone and they're putting the moves on you and you're a Christian and you're not going to do it. You say, whoa, baby, back it up. And then you just bust it out and say, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. If you like it, you should have put a ring on it. I've heard that from Dr. Laura, and she's a Jew. No rang, no thang, can't touch this. Do, 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 do. That's what you do. You just tell them. It's, you know, I'm not going to go there with you. You know, that may be your thing. It's not my thing. And you draw a healthy boundary because you are going to please God with your life. That's just pretty good preaching, if I may say so myself. You are going to do the right thing, and you're going to honor God. And... You may be shocked at how God is going to honor your boundary. I'll give you an example. Uh, before I was a Christian, I did Oh, <laughs> ouch. Uh, you're going to give an example. I thought you were going to go into a b- biblical passage. Oh, we're going into your life. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Sorry, Craig. Your life doesn't even come close to rising to the level of Scripture. did a lot of non-Christian things. And right around when I was turning 19-ish, 20 or so, I surrendered my life to Christ. And one of the first things I made was a commitment that I'm not going to uh, be with a woman until I'm married. And that was kind of odd for the people I hung around with. And one time there was this girl that was kind of being forward with me. I don't know why that happened all the time. It was a tough deal. I mean, it was like, just, just joking. But I'm <laughs> just kidding. There was this gal who was being forward with me, and I just put up a healthy boundary. I said, you know what, I don't want to sound freaky or anything, but I used to, you know, but I'm a, I'm a Christian now, and I'm not going there. She's like, what? 
y'all are weird. I'm like, yeah, in, in, it, you know, intentionally so. And she just couldn't understand that. Well, true story, about two months later, I was going to class, and I bumped into this gal. She's like, I still can't, you're weird. She said, there's this girl that you ought to meet. She is as weird as you. She's like overboard for God. Her name is Amy, true story, and it was this girl who then introduced me to the love of my life, the mother of my six kids, because I drew a boundary, God used it. And it was really cool, is this girl, she ended up becoming a part of our church years later, committed her life to Christ, and realized I was a person of integrity who years ago lived what I claimed to believe. You'll be shocked how God... Uh, boy, this sounds really good. Uh, here's the problem is, is that, um, who's the savior in this scenario? Not Jesus. It's Craig Rochelle. You got to be careful here. Um, yeah, you got to be real careful. Yes, we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, but all of my good works and the integrity that I have is a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in my life. And I don't hold myself up as some huge moral example because I still sin daily and sin much. And so you got to be careful here because if if the the reason why somebody quote is a Christian is because of your great moral example, uh, then there's a tendency here that you're just hiding your sin and not confessing it, and you're you're making yourself out to be more moral than you really are. And again, I come back to. Yeah, what about the people who are being slaughtered here through the law preaching that you're giving, and they're basically going, oh, well, I'm not like you, Pastor. I actually gave in to my temptation, and I, you have any good news for me? Because that's some great advice, but the cow's already left the barn. God might work if you're faithful enough to draw a healthy boundary. Now, Boy, I did not just hear that, did I? I, I did hear that. We've got to back the uh, audio up just a smidge. And realized I was a person of integrity who years ago lived what I claimed to believe. You, you, you'll be shocked how God might work if you're faithful enough to draw a healthy boundary. Now- God might work if you are faithful enough God might work if you are faithful enough. Law or gospel? That is pure, unadulterated law. And it's conditional, too. Conditioned upon you being faithful enough. Ouch. Now, all that being said, there will be times when you do that and someone does not respect the boundary. They continue to tempt. They continue to criticize. They continue to abuse. They they continue to poison. At that point, what I'm about to tell you is something very dramatic. Many of you may disagree, but I stand by this 100%. The second thing you have to do if they continue to pollute is you have to cut off the toxic relationship. You have to cut it off. You have to. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Everybody listen very carefully. I am not talking about divorce. This is not a marriage issue. Everybody repeat after me. I will not divorce my toxic spouse. Okay? And this is not go home and say, you're toxic. If you have a 
toxic marriage is because both of you are toxic. There is sin, and, and if, there is, if there is sickness, you go to a doctor. You go to a counselor. You go to your campus pastor. You go to your life. You, you work through it. I'm also not talking about divorcing your family. I've I, I got to be honest. I think this is so, so sad to see how often a parent will say, I'm writing my child off, or to see a child, I'm never speaking to my dad again. I'm never, no, we're talking family. We're talking about covenant. You work through pain. You work through it. The only time you're going to cut off is when there's the threat of extreme abuse, and you're doing it for safety, nothing else. Not, well, she said, and so we're not talking anymore. No, you work it through with family. I'm talking a broader set of relationships. In fact, when you look in Scripture, you can see examples, even very simple. Paul and Barnabas, they disagreed about one guy, and they were, they were saying, what should we do? And, and they're like, well, we disagree. And because of their disagreement, they couldn't continue to minister effectively because they were disagreeing. So they just said, let's go our separate ways. It was, uh, it was all on good terms. You go minister there, I'll go here. And we just parted ways so that we could be more effective. Look in the Old Testament. There's verses in your notes that can be helpful. God would say, don't go in and intermarry with those who worship pagan gods. Don't Stay away, cut it off, or you'll get sucked into the toxic, false religions. You can see Paul saying, don't be unequally yoked. In other words, don't partner up with non-believers. You, you want to have as many non-Christian friends as you can have as you minister to them. But you're not going to date them if you're a Christian. You're certainly not going to marry them if you're a Christian. You're not going to become covenant partners in a business deal because ultimately you should have very different values. You can see a great example of this uh, when Joseph in the Old Testament uh, was serving and honoring Potiphar's family. Anything the family needed, he was there for until Potiphar's wife asked him to do something very inappropriate. She made a move on him and watches he immediately cuts off the relationship. Scripture says Potiphar's wife caught Joseph by his cloak and said, come to bed with me, big boy. Okay, what did he do? He left his cloak in her hand and say it aloud. He what? He ran out of the house. Now, I don't know. I, I don't think you could even see that on TV. I mean, she took off. He's, she's got his clothes, and he's doing this. I hope he had underwear on. But that guy is busting out of the house. Notice what he didn't do. Notice he didn't say, oh, well, obviously you have a spiritual challenge. May I sit down and hold hands with you and pray with you about this and ask the Lord to deliver you from your lust issues? He, he didn't do that, and yet sometimes that's what people do. He realized this is potential gangrene. This, is, this could be very, very dangerous. Actually, in Joseph's words, he basically says, how could I commit such a sin against the Lord? And notice what he's doing here uh, with Craig Rochelle. Basically, at this point, we're kind of strip mining the Bible, and the Bible is turned into a bunch of character sketches. Hmm. Yeah, that's a dangerous way to read the Bible. And he cut off the relationship. There are all sorts of examples. Maybe you're a, a teenager and someone is sexting you. Some of you go, what is sexting? That's sending inappropriate sexual texts. Very common in middle school and high school today. You, dr you draw a healthy boundary. Stop. I don't want to see another one of those. If they continue, you cut it off. You 
change your phone, you don't give it to them, we are no longer texting. You're cutting off this relationship. Okay, now, I, I, I don't disagree with any of the moral things that he's upholding. He's upholding the biblical moral standards. But there's an element missing to his preaching at this point. And unless you really focus, you, you, you kind of miss it. And the thing is, is that Christ said to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Here, Craig is preaching for, in a way, repentance, or at least a change in behavior, a, a 180 from you know something, and to give you a different way to live and living your life according to uh, the standards that God has set. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should be admonishing each other to live in light of God's law and to serve our neighbor in light of God's law, because you know, in obeying God's law, we're also serving our neighbor. Okay, that, that's this is all. Tr- this there's nothing wrong with this. The problem, though, is is that by itself, it's missing the important Christian ingredient: Christ and Him crucified for our sins. So far, we're getting a moralizing behavior modification, uh, psychological category pep talk that in some sense could be argued as a form of, quote, repentance, but where's the forgiveness of sins? For both the person in the toxic relationship and the toxic relator and those who have fallen short of the standard that Craig Groeschel is putting forward. Because the standard he's putting forward is not his own. In many in many ways, this is the biblical standard. He's very aware of God's law and cognizant of it. Where's the forgiveness of sins, though? It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Law and gospel, sin and grace, and the fruit of repentance in, our, in, in obedience in our life to God. Yeah, yeah because that is poison and I'm not going to stand for it. You've got a, uh, a business partner and they're wanting to do, to do something very unethical. You say, no, we're not going to do that. They insist we're going to do something unethical. It's going to drive up profits. You say, you know what? I'm not going to continue in this relationship. I'll buy you out. You buy me out, whatever the case is, but I'm not going to compromise my values. Let's just go our separate ways. I'll still be nice to you, but we're not going to be business partners. You're flirting with someone at the office. They're flirting with you. You're starting to be, oh, man, you're married, and someone's flirting with you. They're toxic. Notice the setup, though. You're flirting with them. At this point, we've already crossed the line. We're, We're into adultery of the heart. You cut it off. You get out of there immediately. You do not stick around. You run for the hills. Ladies, you may be, you're dating someone. He's a jerk. Everybody knows it. Every one of your friends says he's a jerk. Your mom says he's a jerk, your dad says he's your best friend, everybody in your life group, and you're continuing with someone who is obviously not God's best. You just say, I, I am not settling for a fixer-upper. I am not going to insult God to say he couldn't bring me someone special. I'm not going to let you treat me that way. You break up. You have faith that God's going to bring you someone better. If someone continues to tear you down and push you morally, you break it off. I am separating from you. We're cutting this off. It sounds harsh, but there are times when you need to do this. Now, let me be very, very clear. 
this should be the cutoff. It should be a very, very rare thing for a Christian to do. It really should. This should be very, very rare. In fact, I've just kind of thought through, based on my experience, it would probably be a little... Yes, immediately the question came to mind, okay, why should this be rare for the Christian? Uh, can What Bible passage are you referring to in this sense? And then he said, well, according to my experience. Uh, okay. More common in your teenage years and maybe in your 20s or so because you're typically exposed to more uh, toxic type behavior. It, it'll also be probably a little more common for those of you that are newer Christians. You're coming out of some polluted relationships. You've got some, some baggage. You're still more vulnerable. Maybe a little common at that time. As you grow, though, in Christ, you should already have healthy boundaries in place. You should start building more appropriate and healthy relationships. And I, I am not saying, you know, you go, oh, okay, I've got the 18 people i got to cut out of my life today. That should be very rare. In fact, it's been close to 20 years since we've drawn, drawn a line in the sand and said, we're not going to continue in this relationship. When you do so, you often do it from you also do it from a very Christian perspective. It's I love you. I'm always going to pray for you. I'm not bad mouthing you. It's just this is what we have to do to honor God. And you never know how God might actually use this. Then what do you do? The reason you're doing it is so you can be like Jesus, who at times would set a boundary so he could go be with God for forty days and forty nights. Ultimately, it's to be like Jesus. But see, again, I, I, the Christology that he's preaching here, I've got to throw a red flag and say, nope, there's, there's a foul on the play here. Um, he's not really exegeting the, the scriptures correctly. And this claim that he's making that Jesus set a boundary and then went on the mountaintop for 40 years, I'm, what are you talking about? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, right after his baptism and before he called his disciples. Um, yeah, I don't recall Jesus setting a boundary uh, when it came to his wilderness experience. So he could be so full of God and so full of his love and so full of his presence and so full of his spirit so that Jesus could then, with strength, go full on into a toxic world and help those who were hurting, and, and open blind eyes, and heal deaf ears, and love the unlovable, and touch the lepers, because he was so full. How about die on the cross for the sins of the world? This interpretation of Christ's life seems to kind of miss the whole point. In fact, this almost sounds like liberalism, Protestant liberalism, not um, biblical Christianity of God's presence. This isn't a self-preservation, I've got to stay away from those dangerous people. This is a, I've got to do what it takes to be so full of God that I can go and give his love to everyone who needs him in the world. But you'll never be able to do that. Hmm. Yeah, this uh, definition of Christ's likeness um, is, is yeah, I know something's way off here. If you continue to let gang green... Let the bad company corrupt your good character. There are those of you who need to hear. Oh, man. I don't need anyone else's bad company to corrupt my good character because I'm a sinner. (sighs) From the Spirit of God today, create a boundary or maybe even cut it off so that you can please God, know him, and then with strength 
so that you can please God, so that you can please God, so that you can please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.4 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Here he's not talking about faith and trust in Christ and the good works that flow from it, because we haven't heard any of that. We're hearing basically you pleasing God by you setting boundaries and you keeping God's law. Ouch, this, this is not Christ's righteousness. This is your own righteousness, and this is self-righteousness, and this doesn't please God. Because self-righteousness doesn't need faith. It just needs to try harder to be gooder. Show his love to those who desperately need him. All of our campuses together in prayer. Father, thank you. Okay, we're done. Yeah, it's, again, I, I come back to the point that I've heard this sermon before. Uh, not from Craig Rochelle. I heard this growing up in evangelicalism. And what was missing? This was all law, no gospel. This was self-righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ. There was no forgiveness of sins, yet after hearing that litany of things that they ought to do in their boundary setting, I'm sure there probably wasn't uh, anybody left in that congregation or in this audience that listening to this program uh, who can't say that um, they didn't, that they're not guilty of uh, doing those things. As a result of it, we need to hear not our own self-righteousness to try harder to set these boundaries so that we can please God. We need to hear about the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and how we've been made pleasing to God through the shed blood of Christ. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This was an utter confusion of law and gospel. In fact, there was no gospel in it. And this is a formula for self-righteousness or ultimately for spiritual despair. Because the person who is honest with themselves, who truly looks into the mirror of God's law and what it demands from us, realizes that they haven't kept this, they don't keep this, and as a result of it, um, there's no way that God's going to be pleased with them because they can't do enough to please God and they've definitely not even come close to doing enough. Yeah, we need to hear the gospel, not just stark naked law. This is sad. This is just really, really sad. And when again, when you put the uh, those passages back in the context that he ripped them from, then ironically, you realize that it's Craig Groeschel who is the one who is corrupting. He's the one who's the gangrene because his he's not teaching sound biblical doctrine and rightly handling God's word, but instead is mishandling it. Hmm. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, by the way, is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Um, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Visit our website. Choose one of the buttons there. Fi- uh, join our crew or donate and uh, so that we can continue our, to pay our bills and uh, be able to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you'd like to email me, you can do so. My email address again, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. 
Repent and be forgiven. Amen. Amen.